0: Welcome back to CrimeFiction.fm, where we bring the authors of today's best mysteries and suspense novels directly to you. I'm your host, Stephen Campbell, and I'm here with Diana Deverell, the author of Right the Wrong, the second in her Nora Doxon series. Diana, Welcome.
1: Well, hi, Steve, and thanks for having me.
0: Well, it's a pleasure to chat with you. I read Right the Wrong, the second book in the series. I haven't read the first one yet. And one of the things I noticed right off is that I really like Nora, Nora Doxon, your protagonist. Let's let's give listeners a little bit of a sense of her, and she's got an interesting background.
1: Right, I uh, more or less backed into this character. I heard about a young woman who had a very rough childhood, uh, Mother was absent a great deal, spent time with her grandmother. father was a, uh, not not in the picture and she got into trouble, ended up in a women 's prison uh, servant she was committed she committed a felony and was sentenced to a prison and While there, she worked as a jailhouse lawyer and when she got out, she earned her law degree and she went into the practice of law specializing in appeals that is basically people who were already locked up, she was working to see if she could find a way to get them out. And I thought that was just a fabulous story, and I I wanted to go where that woman had gone mm-hmm. and see what she did. Uh, and in, in the process of checking deeper into appeals work, I learned that it's, it's not just about going to law school and learning constitutional law. It's also about having an ability to dig into old cases, uh, to talk to witnesses and and find out things they may not have revealed before, and to always have an eye out for when things might have gone wrong in the past. past. And I thought the background, this this rough background, the prison experience, would give somebody uh, such an unusual slant on that search. I just wanted to go with her. And so since... um, it isn't possible to deal with the person who inspired me. I, I made one up, and, and uh, so that's what it's all about. Uh, uh, I just wanted to be in that world and take advantage of her colorful history to see what others miss. So in, that's
0: It gives you, as an author, the opportunity to just create all of these layers because Nora is such a richly multi-layered character. That's one of the things that just jumped out of the book at me is is just all the dimension that she has, and it makes her so interesting to the reader.
1: She's certainly interesting to me, and part of the process is that I start with her in the first book as a a relatively inexperienced courtroom lawyer, and so as she learns— and learns how to do it. I'm learning along with her, and, that, and that's been really enjoyable. I, 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 It was quite an experience. However, I have to admit that as I got into the second book, I was no longer just uh, making things up, but I tapped in to some gut-level emotions that I really hadn't admitted to myself before.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, the first and foremost was that I had to finally confess that I absolutely hate being inside a prison. Uh, I have a niece who's serving time, and I Mm. visit her whenever I'm in the United States, Mm -hmm. and I, of course, don't want to dwell on how unpleasant it is to be in there, but as I wrote from Nora's point of view, I came to see that this is just a horrible, soul-destroying environment, and even in the visitor's room, it feels oppressive and awful and It helped me understand why Nora would commit herself to helping people who might not belong there get out. And It's uh, what became, what was just an interesting writing project has really become a novel of the heart.
0: Now, when you started this, she's obviously a series character now, but when you started with Nora, was that your intent, or, or was it your intent to just write a book and see what happens?
1: I started out just... The the challenge for me was that uh, I'm a thriller writer, Mm -hmm. or at least I was in the past, and an appeals case can take 30 years before you get results, and it's very hard to imagine that as a thriller. So the first challenge that I wanted to see if I could overcome before I considered writing further books was whether I could carve out just a portion of time, a month or so, that was the heart of the case and that included most of the exciting elements, and once I was halfway through the first book, I, I knew there were more books here because Nora just couldn't stop with this. you was learning so much, you would have to go on. You're
0: right. This is the kind of thing that, that can go on for a while because the, there's, there are so many things. I mean, we see things in the news every week about uh, appeals cases that are overturned for one reason or the other and, and the advent of, of new science that allows – law enforcement to test a little bit more thoroughly and, and go back and, and run tests from years and years ago. Uh, one of the things that was interesting in, in this book, and we'll get to the kind of the story behind this book in a, in a few minutes, but one of the things that was interesting to me, I, I always think, well, you can just go back and, and do the DNA, do the DNA testing. And in some cases, it's not that simple.
1: No, it was a shock to me when I first started reading this to understand that once a person is convicted of a crime, is found guilty, they lose virtually all their rights. There's no longer an assumption uh, that they're innocent. The assumption's the other way around, and it takes, seems to me, monumental effort to do what should be a simple thing, because the court is reluctant uh, to overturn a jury's uh, decision, and, and... they have to assume that the person who was found guilty is not a reliable person to talk to about whether or not they they committed the crime and what really happened right and as as readers, we can see it
0: sort of from both from both perspectives, but it it was it was so and, and i 'm sure this is one of the things you're trying to do with the book is to to open our eyes a little bit to to this kind of thing but when there when there is science, that, that casts doubt on things, and um, it, it's not considered for whatever reason, it's uh, it, it's iffy.
1: <laughs> it's mind-boggling, but you have to understand, you have a judge here, and he says, I'm looking at this, mm-hmm. if, this, if, this if, we, if I allow this test, and it uh, shows a different result, would that overcome the dis- decision of the jury? Would we then see that, it, that a new trial was in order? And he'd say, no. Perhaps in this case, that's not true. It wouldn't be sufficient because I have all this other evidence in the file. Uh, So, therefore, there is no point in having the test. And I'm trying really hard to understand this because, I mean, people don't become judges or prosecutors or law enforcement officials for malicious reasons. They're they're trying to keep us safe. So, how can it go so badly wrong? And then it comes down to it has to be a systemic problem and... uh, this is where I've ended up at least, so I have these little lines you know, in a broken system, that kind of thing. right. okay, well
0: let's uh, let's take a minute and give us your overview of the storyline for right the wrong, the second book in the series.
1: In this novel, uh, Laura Nora is trying to juggle two different cases, but uh, both both involve an element of confession. In the first one, long after the the her client has been incarcerated. His brother shows up and says, uh, believing that he's about to die, says it was him, that he had done it. But he only tells someone in the hospital that information doesn't ever reach anyone who might be able to use it. And it's at that point, 12 years after the brother has made this confession only to one person and dis- you know, disappeared from the scene for a while and eventually died, that this information comes to Nora, who's preparing the second trial new trial for her client so that was just amazing how that information didn't get where it should have gone much earlier uh what how it can be brought in now and and what the results can be and without the advent of the technological advances in dna testing that you mentioned Mm -hmm. uh it probably wouldn't even have been testable in any way so that that was one it was inspired by a real case in in wisconsin uh and I had the advantage of being able to uh, read the judge's decision in there and see how he arrived at his conclusions when he made a decision. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that was. I can't believe it's available online. <laughs> the, the second case is, is based very, very loosely on something similar that happened in rural Nebraska and also involves confessions, and I, I won't say more about that one because I really felt I had to work hard to make that one credible because the few lines that summarize that in the online statements are are impossible to understand. You say, this couldn't possibly have happened. (laughs) So my goal there was just to try to find a way that it would be credible and to understand how good people, all trying to do the right thing, had come up with such a, a wrong final conclusion.
0: And the books are set in Spokane, Washington, and it, something that's particularly interesting to me, I happened to know where you live before I read the book, and so I was surprised at the setting, and so then I had to dig into your background a little bit more to try and understand it. You, you set the books in Washington. You lived for years in Oregon, right? Right. And now you live in some unpronounceable to me city in Norway, or Denmark, well, well, actually, in Denmark. Yeah, no, I'm
1: at, yeah, let I me, let me try it.
0: Let me see if I can get it. Jorluse Finn Denmark.
1: Well, that's very nice. It would be closer <laughs> if you had said Jorlusefjøn Denmark. But uh, <laughs> trust me, Danes don't find my accent uh, justice does justice to it. All right, say it again slowly. Jorlusefjøn, which uh, literally means waterless, uh, no groundless. Uh-huh. Excuse me, they have another town that means waterless. And then uh, in the uh, the English version of the island where I live is is Funen. Uh, they spell it F-Y-N and pronounce it F-Y-N.
0: Okay, all right. Well, that was a poor effort on my part.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Most people pronounce J that way. You just have to remember those Scandinavians and all (laughs) the... All right, so how do you go from
0: living in Oregon to living in Denmark and writing a book uh, that takes place in Spokane, Washington, or writing a series that takes place in Spokane?
1: Okay, uh, I picked. I'll start with the last question. Uh, I wanted to set it in the United States in a in a state which is not notorious for having a, a bad government. And my inclination was the Pacific Northwest. I didn't want to put this all of this down in Louisiana, for example, and and have to deal with the fact. <laughs> with a situation I knew less well. And and thank Uh, you for not putting it in Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm glad to skip That's a little cliched right now. (laughs) And I actually picked Washington over Oregon because at the time I was writing, Washington's governor had not yet um, halted executions in the state. And I thought I would like to deal, at least in the beginning here, with life or death stakes. So I wanted the execution to remain a possibility uh, for uh, the client now how I got from Oregon to Denmark, uh, it, I married a Dane, what can I say? <laughs> and uh, in in the year 2001, when uh, my uh, writing career had, was on hiatus, shall we say, he said, wouldn't this be a good time for us to go live in my native land? So, we've lived in Denmark since 2001. Okay, and prior
0: to that, you were writing... Uh, thrillers. And I I see on your website, your website is beautiful, by the way. People should definitely go to your website, which is Diana, D-I-A-N-A-D-E-V-E-R-E-L-L dot com. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes, but it's beautifully done. I went back through some of the old work and linked through to Amazon and saw that some of it was written in the late 90s, early 2000s. So what was the reason for the hiatus that you mentioned?
1: Well, it's primarily... uh I wrote, now let me get back here. My husband and I met in Cold War Poland, uh, and we um, were fairly late starting a family. I was 38 when our first child was born. Mm-hmm. So within five years, I had given up my career with the State Department, and I was a stay at home mom, and I finally found time to write. And what I wanted to write about, uh, I wanted to write like John Le Carré and Len Dayton, I wanted to create spy thrillers with female protagonists. Mm-hmm. So I joined a writer's group. We were living in Oregon at the time because um, I needed my mother <laughs> to help me with all those children. Uh-huh. And I had time to write and was able to, I got very lucky and was able to actually sell that two books in that series. Mm-hmm. However, in, in right around the time when I had such good luck, publishing was going through a major transition. Uh, I was published by Avon. They were bought by HarperCollins. There was downsizing, and I just didn't make the cut. So, okay. Uh, for the next several years, I could, chel- I could only sell my short stories. So that was as easy to do from Denmark as from Oregon, so I agreed to the move. Uh, my life changed uh, when I discovered indie publishing and could mm-hmm. put my backlist out. And- Isn't it wonderful? And I have to
0: say, as a reader, I mean, your story... I speak to a lot of authors, and your story is, is fairly common. You you had a publishing deal, something changed, and these characters that we as readers grew to love disappear. And then years later, um, with the advent of indie publishing, we're able to get them back, which is so wonderful.
1: Well, you know, they tell you that if uh, if you're in a situation like that where you've got, you know, five books in a drawer and so forth and so on, that if if you can publish them online digitally and create a vacuum you may find that you want to write about something new and that's what happened to me it was mm-hmm. like ah, oh, just, it just took off so i've been having a really good time
0: well i really enjoyed your book i i really i really like nora so I, I think you've got a great character there you've got a great series going um... highly recommended to people what's the best way diana for people to follow you
1: and your work well, I have a Facebook author page that I check every day, and I'm certainly happy to get comments there. Uh, I also have, a, as you said, the website, and mm-hmm. uh, there is a possibility to comment on that one. And, oh, boy, I'd love people to sign up for my newsletter, too, and then I could keep them well-informed.
0: <laughs> That's the way to do it. And um, I signed up this morning for your newsletter— That's the best way. If you find work that you like and you're a reader, sign up for the author's newsletter, and that way you don't miss a thing. There's so many books coming out, it's hard to keep up with everything. So, Diana, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Well, thank you, Steve. I loved it. This is Stephen Campbell for CrimeFiction.fm. You can find us on iTunes and on the web at www.CrimeFiction.fm. If you are an iTunes listener, please subscribe and give us a rating or a review. Those will help other crime fiction readers find great new books like Right the Wrong from Diana Deverell. Thanks for listening.